we're starting the spooky season early with a treat, not a trick. Author, screenwriter, journalist, and hauntingly handsome guide Grady Hendricks chats about his work including Horror Store, My Best Friend's Exorcism, We Sold Our Souls, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, and The Final Girl Support Group. Join us for a scarily good time on Uncensored Radio. Hey, out there in UCR land, we have a very special show for you today. We're going to start the spooky season a little bit early. It is all treat and no trick because today (laughs) with us, we have an author, a journalist, a screenwriter, and all things amazing, according to his own website. Today, we have joining us Mr. (laughs) Grady Hendricks. Hello, Grady. How are you? You Hello. you left off, gentleman and scholar. I'm I'm, oh, I'm sorry. disappointed. <laughs> oh well, look, we oh, can yeah, only be hard to disappoint you further. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't wear website. all this makeup for like no reason. Oh, we love makeup. We've all got makeup on this morning. No one said anything uh, about how pretty I am. Like, I'm yeah, I'm going bad. to. Thank you. That was Where my favorite it? line in your whole bio. Was like he's very pretty and he doesn't mind being told or whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> who does? When you've got all this going on, it's only natural that people are going to mention it. I'm ready. Your eyes, your eyes are popping today. Beautiful. Yeah, thank you. What <laughs> yeah. I, I do a little bit of white eyeshadow right in the corners there <laughs> and there. Um, and yeah. I use some B serum just to keep the, yeah. the wrinkles out and. Boom! It's like two oh, searchlights. How's your contouring your skills going? You know what? Naturally occurring. I don't contour the artificial <laughs> way. <laughs> if I really need to, if I really need to tighten up this instrument, I stand under a very cold waterfall for like twelve hours and just makes it taut. Yeah, yeah. makes sense. Brings out, brings out the cheekbones. <laughs> I Nothing find like a bit of body stem cells work the best, as everybody said Ellen was using. Yeah. Let's kill all the children and just be oh, youthful. No. <laughs> it's going to be one of those shows, I think. I always say it's okay. not a snack platter without baby stem cells. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Remember how you always talked about getting cancelled, Jeffrey? This could be the one. This could be it. <laughs> I've been Maybe. trying. You know, babies aren't online. They're not on social media. Soft target. Yeah, Yeah, too easy. All right, so I'm going to jump straight into it with one of the craziest things that I've read in your whole bio. Mm. You worked for the Society of Cyclical Research? Yes. Um, Tell me more. Tell me more. (laughs) So I basically, this was late 90s, I guess, early 2000s. And it was just a Craigslist ad for an office manager for a nonprofit. And so I go up and the nonprofit turned out to be the ASPR, the American Society for Psychical Research, because psychical sounds more uh, serious than psychic. And um, they've been around since 1885. William James was one of the founders, Henry James's brother. And um, they were basically founded to investigate parapsychology because that was sort of the big spiritualism boom and all that. And they wanted to apply scientific reasoning to that. And so they had this townhouse on the Upper West Side and uh, this great archive. And I was kind of the, they were sort of like between um, sort of phases in their existence. So I really like was kind of the only employee at the time. And I sat in this townhouse and answered the phone. Um, And interestingly enough, uh, Dan Aykroyd and his brother, it was dad too, but were members. And um, 
Dan, this is the place that Dan based the original Ghostbusters script on because it was originally sort of a more serious uh, script. Um, but, you know, the woman who uh, screams, we got a ghost, she's actually based on the person who had my job, I think three or four people before I had it. So yeah, I was there for four years, maybe five, and uh, read a lot of material in the archive and answered the phone a lot. <laughs> and did you ever see the That's ghost? Is that the woman screaming? No, you know, we had a lot of people calling in who'd seen ghosts. Um, and it's interesting, you know, it's um my I really felt like um it's the the thing I learned is seeing a ghost is, is a pretty common human experience. Like I would be hard pressed to, you know, I think probably most people feel like they've seen a ghost or something they've processed as a ghost. And I think it's really interesting to, to see it on their level, like not be like, oh, it was a reflection of it. You know, it's like, well, why? You know, what did that mean to you? Um, you know, I, I usually would ask people a lot of questions and that would sometimes help them zero in on, on what was going on in their life. But it was really interesting. People processed a lot of trauma, a lot of grief, a lot of like sort of life disruption through seeing ghosts and supernatural events. It was really cool. And seeing the archive, which went back to the, 18th century like you'd read accounts of things then you know 1810 1820 that were really close to what people were calling in and reporting now and so i think a lot of times this stuff fits into a framework that's cultural you know and a lot of times maybe it's it's working on the same apparatuses in the brain um so yeah it was really fascinating i i love doing it it was a great job it sounds that's like a great job that's amazing. Um, I, like, that was the yeah. What's that? <laughs> no, I was just going to say, then every now and then you get someone calling in with, you know, oh, my upstairs neighbors are psychic energy vampires. And like, those were calls I didn't know what to do with, really. You know, like. <laughs> that, that was. You just like, tell put, me more. <laughs> put in the bag to save for a book later on. Exactly. But also, also, I feel like energy vampires are like the most boring kind of vampire. Like, um, you know, and it's funny, you know, we've yeah. all seen what's his name, the energy vampire and what we do in the shadows. But like people out there really do feel like that their neighbors are like sucking their vitality. Um, and I, I don't mean what happens to Dan Aykroyd halfway through Ghostbusters with the lady ghost. Um, but also, all the way back to the 19th century, there was a big fad for... Um, probably in the 1880s, a little bit pre-Dracula and a little bit post-Dracula, but there was a big fad for stories about energy vampires. Um, there's some great ones. Arthur Conan Doyle wrote one. Um, they're really great. It would just be, you know, just be people, they just get weaker and weaker and more and more tired. Um, there's a great book that came out the same year as Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, sorry, as um, Bram Stoker's Dracula called uh, Blood of the Vampire by um, uh, 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 Mary, uh, I cannot remember her name, but a female author. But it's basically about this young girl who's like super vivacious. And, oh my God, she just got out of like a convent. She just wants to hang out with everyone. She goes to vacation hotspots and talks and talks and talks and talks. And everyone around her just gets like sleepier and sleepier. And then their children die and like everyone just gets weaker. And she's just like basically like sucking their energy out. It's great. I think I worked with her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like the manic pixie dream girl of yeah. death. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like how you start, how you come in here and on Sunset Radio, like, yeah, everything's great. And then 
it just sucks the life out of you and you know <laughs> but anyway <laughs> that's our problem so um i also you you were quite um outspoken about your parents dropping you off at libraries for day for easy daycare and that's oh, how yeah. you got into um that's how you got into reading did you naturally gravitate to the horror genre or are you 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 were a fan of everything from everything that i've you know yeah everything I i've mean, read about you <laughs> Yeah, horror kind of like grossed me out. You know, I was I was a teenager in the eighties, which is like the horror paperback boom. And really I avoided those books. Like like every kid, I discovered Stephen King at like, you know, eleven. Um I, I found like Clive Barker's Books of Blood or like two of the volumes in paperback on like the shelf in a beach house we rented one summer, and those were, you know, pretty great because they had sex in them too. Um and then there were those, we, over here in the States, we had these Alfred Hitchcock treasury. They were basically using his name to sell anthologies of horror stories. But like, I really, it wasn't my thing. I loved, loved military fiction and like men's adventures. Like if someone was shooting someone with a gun, like I was all about it as a kid, <laughs> um, you know? Um, like my favorite so book in middle yeah. school was this book called The Park is Mine by Stephen Peters, I think, but, um, and it's basically this crazy Vietnam vet just gets like, he just decides to take over Central Park and then he booby traps it. And then for the rest of the book, cops try to take it back from him and he just murders them. And I feel like if I was growing up now and my favorite book that I read over and over again was about a dude murdering a whole lot of cops. <laughs> and, a <dude> who's, <laughs> and a dude who also not just murdering cops, but he's like totally ripped out of his head on amphetamines because he can't sleep because he's the only person holding Central Park. Like, I feel like I'd, I'd have to go see the school counselor or something. But like in the in the you 80s, my parents were like, as long as you're reading, at least it's a book. <laughs> but I think when be, we, we used to get away with a lot more back in the day though like I remember when I was a kid because my I had older brothers so I was like drawing Friday the 30th comics and stuff at yeah. school nowadays I'd be in the counselor's office yeah. You know? And uh, and you know, and Jason was always fun to draw because of the hockey mask you didn't have to worry about a human face you've got the hockey mask, a knife you're good to go and, you know, and I just... always thought it was good to just cast my, my classmates, because that's all I knew as a child, in these comics. So now it's probably viewed as a death threat, but, you know, they're all alive. <laughs> but did, they like, did they like it? Because I would imagine that they, like, kids love being killed, like in, in fiction. Um, the, the posh girl at school didn't. She, nah. she had issues. Yeah, she, yeah. she made some trouble, some waves. She'd have blown but, you know. in. <laughs> Yeah, but she got a good death, so, you know, I did her right. <laughs> well, look, as long as you get a good death. Yeah, I used to have friends' kids begging to kill me in my books, I, and I did to some of them. And then I was just like, you know what? It's getting, like, my death toll with these. Like, they want more and bigger in the next book, and it's like, I didn't want my books to be driven solely by eight- and nine-year-olds' fantasies about dying in fiction <laughs> in graphic ways, so I had to kind of stop doing it. One of them threatened to sue me. <laughs> she was like we had an or she was like we had an oral agreement that you would kill me in every single book and you did it twice i'm gonna get a lawyer wow exactly we're gonna um we're gonna jump into i guess you the the book that kind of started it all for you in the big mainstream way was horror store correct yeah 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 
I'm actually yeah. writing the screenplay right now. This is actually my little map ah! of the inside of the store so because excited. I'm doing the screenplay and I can't remember where anything is. So excited about <laughs> children's so, bedrooms. Um, children's yeah, originally it was yeah. Originally it was optioned as a TV series. Now it's yeah. now it's going to be a feature film. Do you, do yeah. you feel happier, sadder? How do you feel about it? Well, it's always <laughs> nice to get paid twice. Exactly. Uh, and, um, I imagine you pure... can negotiate bigger points on a movie than you can on a store on a TV. Yeah, that's definitely true. Also, um, I always thought of it more as a feature film. Like a lot of really smart people tried to crack it as a series for a few years and just couldn't do it. And I kind of felt like, well, if they can't do it, it can't be done. I mean, these were, were intelligent human beings with good track records. And so I think it works a lot better as a movie. Um, I mean, it really is a dark ride at a carnival. Um, and it's been really fun to do the screenplay. I, I had a moment of despair doing, because I'm working on the second draft now, and I turned it in about a week ago. And that last week, turning that second draft around, I was just like, screw this. I can't do this. Whoever wrote this book is a piece of shit. I hate this. Um, they, they're a lousy writer who can't write. Um, and then they were really happy with it. And so I'm like, great. So I'm doing a few tweaks, and then I think we're going out to directors. So yeah, it's awesome. I'm... I'm I am pleased with the result. Yes. So, um, yes, for those of you that haven't read Horror Store, it is set in a um, Scandinavian furniture store that just happens to be, you know, filled with um, ghosts, we, we, and, we, we come to learn. And stylish and, and difficult to assemble furniture. Exactly. So who's, <laughs> whose idea was whose idea was the catalogue? Yeah, well, so, so my editor... <laughs> from the beginning was like, this has to be the shape of an Ikea catalog. And it has to like have that trim size, that sort of square trim. And it has to, the cover has to look like an Ikea catalog with the, with the sans serif font and all that. It, Jeffrey, did you just teleport? I just knew yeah, yeah. there's somebody I, outside. I'm so glad it took you that long to notice me. I feel so special. In the sticks, we have ghetto internet. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, so anyways, but so my editor, that was his thing. And then one of the nice things about a smaller publisher, which Quirk is, is I get to go back and forth with my editor and with the art director, Andy Reid. And um, so we would keep like, hey, what if each like, you know, chapter started with a piece of furniture? And then I'd be like, well, then if we're going to do a piece of furniture, we need a piece of catalog copy. And then my editor would be like, oh, they should get sort of scarier. So it was just really nice to kick it back and forth like that. Um, and fun fact, it's interesting the horror store set up a lot of terrible expectations on my part because <laughs> Ikea is an international language. And I think that book sold to like 18 foreign territories. Like Germany paid me five times more than I got paid to put that book out in the States because there's so many Ikeas in Germany. Um, and, um, and so I was like, I went to my best friend's exorcism, my next book being like, oh my God, I'm going to sell all these foreign. And I sold like five. Because everyone knows what IKEA is, and no one in another, no one in Thailand, they care about their good sink, you know, uh, like wardrobes. They don't care about two teenage girls in 1988 South Carolina, even if one of them is possessed by Satan. <laughs> you should set it um, in Walmart then. That's everywhere. I feel like IKEA is loved. Like IKEA owns yeah. or occupies. <laughs> a really special psychic place in everyone's brain. Yes. 
Whereas I feel like no matter how often we go to Walmart, everyone hates it's Walmart. Just, it's poor people. Nobody wants yeah. to hear about poor people in a book. Nobody yeah. cares. <laughs> yeah, and I used to feel very different because, like, I come from a Walmart family. Like, I have a ton of family who works in Walmarts, and like, they love it. And like, I'm always like, eh, I don't. Do they treat you other? Oh, treat me great. And I don't see their pay stubs or anything. But um, mm. but yeah. It, so it's always hard for me to thread that needle between. Oh yeah, my uncle John and my my cousin Effie Lou, you know, love Walmart and have worked there for years. But you know, it's also like destroying all these small towns across the country. So Walmart's very fraught for me. <laughs> well, so that's why you, all the more reason to make it a horror story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just walk You've, into um, one. You also enough. said that uh, retail was not for you. How long did you end up work? How long did you work in retail? Because you seem to nail the banality of that day-to-day as someone who works in retail and has for a long time, you, um, you nail that banality very, very well in that book. It's like, well, I did a big part of it was interviewing people who work in Ikea. Like, I mean, I must've interviewed eight or nine people who work in Ikea's. Um, but I worked retail. I worked at, um, I had this weird moment where, probably for two years I worked in retail. I lived in LA for a little bit, so maybe a year and a half. And I went into Tower Classical Music and they were hiring, There was they were next door to a Tower video and across the street from Tower Records on Hollywood Boulevard and um, up towards Beverly Hills. And I went in Tower Classical because they were the only one hiring. And I had this moment, because I feel like you luck out like this once in your life. And this was my one moment. And they gave me this test to take about my classical music knowledge of which I had like zero. And I guessed, I mean, I went through and totally guessed and got every single question right. Every guess was correct. And they're like, you scored, your classical music knowledge is great. And so they brought me in and it took them about three months to realize my classical music knowledge was zero. Um, And so eventually I just sort of, (laughs) I just sort of oozed over into the tower video which was really fun. I hated it and loved it all at the same time. Um, <laughs> I sold, I sold, um, this was in the Laserdisc era. So I sold uh, Pulp Friction, the porn version of Pulp Fiction <laughs> on Laserdisc to Herbie Hancock. Yeah, um, <laughs> it was great. I, I always get to argue because Christian Slater always ran up these outrageous late fees and then he wouldn't return his own videos and would make his housekeeper do it. And we could never accept the videos because he never gave this poor woman enough cash to pay his like $90 late fees. So I'd always have to be the one arguing with Christian Slater's housekeeper. And um, (laughs) Carrie Fisher, weirdly, always had enormous late fees. And she always, when you pointed them out to her, like, I can't take this back until you pay the $112 you owe. She'd just kind of sigh just be like, just start pulling money out of her purse. It was like, you got the feeling this happened to her a lot of places. She went just like, life was moving at one speed and she was just moving a step behind and was like, Ugh. Energy sucker. Carrie <laughs> <laughs> needed a little help now and then. We all know. It's okay. God rest her soul. God rest her soul. But um, yeah, ironically, I actually work in a music and music oh. and DVD store. So I was like, I feel you. I feel you. What are you working like an HMV or? Um, so kind of, kind, yeah, the Australian version of HMV. Yeah. Okay. So still a lot. Oh, at, well, at the moment, <laughs> I'm in lockdown. <laughs> this is like month, like nearly month two. So I might have a job to go back to. Who knows? This could well, be what know, kills the retail store. <laughs> Yay! One thing I never, I never 
felt like I really tackled in Horror Store, and I, I don't really get to in the movie either, is customers, because customers are bizarre. There is something oh, yes. so weird about customers. I don't get it. Like, <laughs> their expectations for a simple retail transaction can be, like, sky high. It's crazy. I think it's, yeah, it's definitely, you're definitely becoming, like, everything that they want yeah. and need in this one transaction. You're like, I'm not your wife, mother, and whore. Just calm down. You're, yeah. just, you're just trying to buy the latest season of Family Guy. Just drop it. Yeah. Drop your levels about seven times. One thing I thought was really interesting is Ikea actually, if you work a register at Ikea, you're usually one of their older employees and like you've been there for a while because their whole thing is you won't find a lot of people on the floor and you're going to get frustrated. And so the one guaranteed contact with, with, with store partners you're going to have is at the register. And so they're like, our people who run registers have to be like, psychiatrists they have to be like counselors they have to be grief counselors couples counseling so like because they just get it all just shotgun right on them by these like people who just like been walking through this store getting progressively more angry and frustrated and it could go the other way too because I, I i very much identified with your protagonist because i'm like people will come to the front of our store and look to see who's working behind the counter and mm. if i'm there they keep going but they're usually the ones who aren't buying anything. They're, I'm, I'm yeah. like, I'm here to do a job, people. But my boss is my boss is horrific. She will listen to people all day, every day, and I'm there like unpacking stock and doing all doing the work. I'm like, shut up, woman. Well, but they, they don't buy anything. They're just there to go. Yes. Oh, my my great aunt Susie lost a foot to diabetes in 1983. You're like, this is relevant <laughs> how, but yeah. Well, you know. It was, it's funny. Um, I also like really my heart goes out to managers in retail because they don't just have to deal with every customer. They have to deal with employees. And like, <laughs> I, yeah, I wasn't a joy. Like, you know, no, we no. did dumb stuff. Uh, and yeah. I had to deal with the fallout. It's good when you work there any, a long time, though. <laughs> in any area, though, where you're providing service to some to people, some people think that means, oh, you're my doormat. I'm going to yeah. wipe my feet on oh, you. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, you have like, two nurses here, by nurses. the way. <laughs> so we, we, we cop it quite a lot. Like, I remember once I was doing, like, chronic disease care plans for people, and I was just, like, everyone's telling me about how their partners have just died in the last few weeks, and I'm like, do you think this was really that important to do today if you're going through that? Like, <laughs> but by the end of it, I was like, holy shit. Like, yeah, grief counselling, big time. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny, actually. So wait, it's Vera and Luke who are nurses? Uh, nurses. nurses. Yeah. Both nurses. Yep. So my mom's uh, was an RN for years. And um, I recently, so over the holidays, I drove with my nephew and I, we drove, because my mom has lung disease, so she really had to take lockdown seriously. So we drove down to South Carolina for the holidays, went down, quarantined for, you know, seven days, got tested, spent, you know, a couple of weeks with my mom, and she got this breast cancer diagnosis on Christmas Eve. It's like, really? Like, um, so I was like, okay, what well, a I'll gift. stick around. Yeah, I know, right? I was like, I'll stick around, you know, and be here through your mastectomy and all that stuff. She's in her 80s. Um, and the experience in the hospital was 
awful. Like it was just like the surgeon forgot to book the anesthesiologist and like they got oh to the point God. where she was in pre-op with an IV in her arm and compression sleeves on her legs and they can't find the anesthesia. And so like, then they just like, oh, well, we'll schedule it for another day. And like, we're like, what? And no. um, it was just awful. And so I started looking around. I was like, where is a horror book set in a hospital? And except for Lars von Trier's The Kingdom, you know, the Danish TV series, I couldn't find anything. And I and then I saw Patty Chayefsky's The Hospital, his movie about like a serial killer in a hospital from the 70s. And I started watching it. And I was like, oh, my God. The George C. Scott is a star and he's like a righteous doctor. And I was like, this is a movie about the only person in a hospital who gets it is this like middle-aged white surgeon guy. I'm like, screw that. If it's not, if it's not a nurse in a hospital or like a surgical right? resident or Thank something, you. like forget <laughs> it. I don't want to hear. And so not my next book, but I think the one after that one is is a horror novel set in a hospital. Um, where the hero's a nurse, because like just hospitals are weird I'm worlds, sure Luke man. Luke and I are available to consult if you need us. <laughs> <laughs> I think you no, want, I think be I've no... got some stories. <laughs> Dude, I love running into nurses at parties because I'm always like, you know, oh, how how's work been? And man, depending on how many drinks they've had, they will go. It's the best. Oh, I've just had someone put their shit in my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you were into I, it. I Don't pretend not. you were. <laughs> so Horror Store um, is kind of like, uh, the thing that it called back for me was and not the House on Haunted Hill kind of moment of everything is definitely not what it seems. And it doesn't, you do this thing in your books where it's little by little and drip by drip that the normal, the normality of day to day life kind of gets infringed by whatever this supernatural force is. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, how did you decide that horror? I, I know that your process is kind of like throw it all to the wall and then make it streamlined into a story. How did horror story? come about because obviously we all feel that putting ikea furniture together is a form of torture in itself right <laughs> is well, this what we know, deserve do you think for, yeah. for wanting that perfection well, you know you actually say something really interesting because there's there's sort of um a, there's a thing that's really hard to do i mean it's my job like it's not as hard as like you know um someone putting their shit in my mouth but it's, it's <laughs> oh, my job though goes which fuck. is like you know typing away um, to make, to hit that point of no return where it's the main character, all the options are exhausted. And so what's happening is clearly horror and they now have to deal with it on that level because you can't do it all at once because that just doesn't work, you know? Um, like it just doesn't come across as real, but you never want the reader to get ahead of the characters in the book too far um because then they get bored so it's always really hard to sell that moment and so that's really a huge challenge um with horror store it was easy i i had the doors open and and the ghosts come out um but it's really tough to sell that moment um and you know and one of the nice things in horror store was making two of the characters ghost hunters like from a reality who want to be on a reality show because it's people who are running towards the ghosts, not away from the ghosts. And that really helps with sort of like engineering, um, a, 
getting to the meat of the story faster. But I mean, in my best friend's exorcism, oh my God, they got to go through so many plausible explanations for this possession before they get to a demon from hell. And so the challenge for that was making those fun um, because you just got to go through them. You know, no one's going to say my friend's possessed by Satan. That's just not going to happen right off the bat. You may feel that on the inside, but you're unlikely to take them to a deliverance minister. Because a lot of your books have that um, kind of popping pop culture bubbles in, like of their time. With Horror Store, Ikea, especially at that sure. time, was all was all, all domination and the ghost hunting shows were huge. You know, there were, yeah. everyone had a ghost hunting show. So holding that up for satire and actually turning it into something that was horrifying was a really interesting way of doing it because the ghost hunting characters are are your typical ghost hunting characters in, in that book. Right. There's one that's like gung-ho and then there's the one that wants to be famous. Yeah. And then, you know, what happens to them is ultimately, you know, deserved, well, I guess, would you say? Well, you know, the, the pop culture thing's interesting because, I mean, I'm just, I, like, and this sounds really lame, but I'm just trying to write about the world I see around me. And, and I'm always astonished at people who don't, who, like, they're writing about, like, some world I'm not aware of, like, um, and you know, it's interesting with a lot of, with some of, I should say, Stephen King's latest books, I was just reading um, If It Bleeds, his short story collection, which is, and listen, at this point, I mean, King's such a rock solid writer. I mean, he's, he's writing at a level, you know, that he really has not been in ages. And I think a lot of his recent stuff is really great, but you're reading his book, about like high school, like one of the stories is about a kid in high school and the bully is a greaser out of the fifties. And I'm like with a glass pack muffler and wearing like, you know, pegged boots or pegged jeans. And I'm like, this is not real. This is something from your high school experience in the fifties, but it's not a kid's high school experience now. And, and so it's a weird thing, even with someone as good as King, um, who used to really get a lot of criticism for putting in brand names and his stories and things. And his whole point was, I'm writing about what I see around me. So my thing is I'm trying to write about what I see around me and you know, like it or not, when you go to a party and conversation flags, people ask, what are you watching? Oh, have you seen this? Oh, you know, people talk about music. People like are talking about Instagram. It's so, like people are really tied into pop culture. And that's a big, we live in that sort of ecosystem. And so I kind of have to put it in the books or else it just doesn't work. You know, um, I'm working on my book for next year right now and I'm very late with it. And, you know, one of the things I just realized is like, there is no social media mention in it. And one of the characters obviously wouldn't, but the other one would have Instagram. She just would. And like, I'm just like, uh, like I've got to come up with some kind of explanation for that. Otherwise it just doesn't, you know, bring true. And or social media has nothing Instagram to do with the story. What's that? Or get her an Instagram account. <laughs> yeah, I know, but it's like, ah, uh, it doesn't have anything to do with the book. And, you know, it's just like, I, but I got to navigate it because otherwise it just, she doesn't feel like a normal Authentic. human in 2021. Yeah. Exactly. So before we move away from Horror Store, because we know that there's a movie coming and I'm super excited about it, I'm going to jump to the ending without too much, without trying to spoil it too much. I mean, if you haven't read it yet, hurry up and read it. Like, it's only been out for a couple of years. Yeah, come on, guys. <laughs> Planet Baby. What do you think? Is there a potential there for more story? 
I, I can um, imagine some kind of demonic, like, village of the damned children of the corn moment. If there is more story there, it's not going to come from me. And there definitely could be. But yeah, I'm not a I'm not a sequel guy. Like exactly, I just, I've got I've got I've got six seven books I want to write that I know I want to write next. Um, and you know, one of the things I'm always jealous of because I don't really love some series, but but you look at a lot of writers and like. Their series is their thing, you know. Uh, Lee Child with the the Jack Reacher books, uh, Patricia Cornwell's K. Scarpetta books. Uh, Elmore Leonard had characters he returned to over and over again. Um, Neil Gaiman and Sandman. You know, you look at this stuff and you really um, even Stephen King has some characters he returned in the Dark Tower. So I really wish I had characters that like had more than one book in them. I really wish I had an idea that could spread over several. I just don't. That's just not where I am. And I hope I do one day because they, they make you rich. But um, I, I just don't. You just well, if the well-run try, you know where to go back to. You know what I mean? <laughs> the well-run things go, what was popular? But you were talking about um, writing from your experience. I think you really nailed well, – for I was not really – a teenager in the 80s but you nailed that 80s vibe in your in your book my best friends or exorcism i love the cover to start yeah. with like hello actually, um uh um oh god um hugh fleming uh hugh fleming i think an australian artist did that he's done a lot of star wars art and um we sure we weren't supposed to have that cover um doogie horner was the art director at quirk my publisher and he came on board about six weeks before we needed the paperback cover. And he had this idea to do a VHS tape. And um, they were like, we don't have time. We got six weeks. We're going to go with the hardback cover for the paperback. And Doogie's like, nope. And he found <laughs> Hugh. And um, Hugh was like, there's not much time. I will give you one sketch. You can give me one set of notes. The end. I'll give you a finished piece after that. The end. And he gave us a sketch and it was pretty sweet. And so we gave him a few notes and then he turned that in. And it was like, that cover has sold a lot of books for me. Yeah. And I am, um, we should not have done it. That was entirely Doogie's intestinal fortitude and Hugh's talent. But it's, it's, I think it's a great, I think the reason that it appeals to people is we've, we've been to the video store. We know what that yeah. is. That that's the known quantity of, and you including the, the cosmo quiz things and the, the song titles, there's chapter headings and all that kind of thing really let us sit in that world of, you know, this is, this is our, our moment and these are what these kids are going through. But, um, the friendship, like for a, for a horror book, you know, it gets thrown around a lot that horror is a disposable genre. There's a lot of heart in this one as well. Like the characters, yeah. you, you actually, I really got into this one. I was like, oh my God, I, I, this was one that was a 4 a.m. one. I was like, okay, I'm going to, one more chapter, one more chapter, one more chapter. I'm like, <laughs> okay, it's 4.30. I'm done. <laughs> I was like, yay, I survived, I survived. But you feel like, you really do go through it with them, which is something that a lot of writers can't catch. You get that feeling that, you know, as we talked about before, something's not right. And you don't, you're like, oh, is it, is it demonic or is she just, you know, losing her mind slowly by like bit by bit. But yeah, the white worm scene, like there's, there's always oh, the one or two. Worm, yeah. Yeah, there's one or two 
the scenes in your novels that you go, oh, okay, this feel like that one felt like full on Freddy Krueger moment. Like, yeah, like, well, oh. <laughs> it was, it, I was surprised because I hadn't seen that scare before. And I think we've all heard the sort of urban legend, you know, of um, how do you get rid of a tapeworm? You wave a piece of raw meat in front of someone's nose and it'll come out because it's hungry. Um, and and then, you know, I clearly wasn't raised in a, a good home because I threw in the dog <laughs> going after it, but dogs do that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, and one of the reasons I think that book worked, and, and it was the first time I did this, but I, I really, um, there were people who really got me through high school. I mean, friends of mine really, I would not have made it without them. And, um, and so I really wanted to write about those high school friendships because they burn so hot and so passionate. And then after graduation, we often don't see those people again, or if we do, it, it doesn't feel right. It's yep. awkward. And, and those friendships are there when we need them and they mean a lot. And, and, and I had ones that really meant a lot. And so I really wanted to write about that. Um, and, and I'm glad it comes across. One of the things that really bums me out that I see writers doing and I see myself doing is not taking the time to really unpack something. Like there were probably several, I don't even want to give a number, but several versions of my best friend's exorcism that had a lot more plot, a lot more incident, a lot more big scares. But what I realized is I was, I was, I was shortchanging the emotional moments. Um, and those are what really pull people in. And so taking the time to unpack those really mattered. And like the book I'm doing right now is about um, a, a pair of siblings and, and I've never written siblings before. And I was just doing a pass on the manuscript, just sort of go through and do a hand pass because I always print it out after the first draft and it's different when you read it on paper. And I was like, oh God, you know, there's not, there's a long time with just emotional stuff between this brother and sister. Like, I don't know. And then I got to the big first scare sequence and I was like, okay, that, that I'm not a total idiot. Like, got it. <laughs> the payoff. That leads up to this. Yeah. And like, and, and so, and, and I'm going to tighten it up some, but it's just like having those emotions in there, the, the payoffs don't have to be as over the top because they'll hit stronger. Um, so I just think it's a, I just think taking the time to unpack that stuff. And even in this book, I need to unpack some stuff that I'm skimping on. So it, it really, it's, it's the hardest thing to make yourself do. Cause you're like, Hey, this book's a B plus. I'm good with the B plus. Like you're looking at a guy who skated <laughs> through high school on C's. I'm like, I'm good. And, and it's like, no, sit down, do the work, you know, take the time, do it over. Mm -hmm. Because you, yeah, as you were saying, it does capture that. <laughs> it does capture that desperation of, of teenage friendship because you do, you do feel like that limited space in time that, and I don't think you really comprehend that until later on that, you know, these relationships are burned so bright and so intensely. And then you don't see, sometimes you don't see these people ever again, but yeah. they leave such an indelible mark on who you are as a person. The Absolutely. ending, the ending is for a hot, like for a horror book. It's, it's a beautiful, it's, tra it's kind of tragic, I guess. But well, it's life, right? Like it's life. On. That's exactly it. Like, um, one of the lines is they didn't make it to Haley's Comet, but they tried. And I feel like that's all we can really do as humans and as a friend. Like, you're not always going to be the most perfect friend to somebody. But as right. long as you're willing to pull them through 
the big things and the small things, that's what really counts at the end. And that's what I got from, from the end of that book. And I sat there and, and just kind of went, oh, and like had a little, you know, exhale yeah. moment right. of going, oh, okay, that's, if it kind of gives you validation as a friend to go, because we all, we all judge ourselves quite harshly. Like, am I, we get caught up in our own things, but it's, yeah. I was like, okay, that that's how I feel. Like oh, if well, I'm I there for you it. when you need me. Yeah, no, it's yeah. fantastic. And you obviously like to um get into the worlds you create because explain, um, <laughs> yeah. explain this moment. Okay. Wow. Yeah. About so, this. That is from the book launch party for my best friend's exorcism. So I had a thing. So when I did horror store, I really didn't know what I was doing. Right. Cause a big part of like writing books is then getting on the road and selling them. So I would go out and I did this book launch event and it was like a three hour drive from New York in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania. And the publicist was like, no, no, no. It's a great store. It's a great store. And it was a good store. And I get there and there's like 30 chairs set up and there's like one person in the chair. Oh, and I was like, oh, come okay. on. And so I, I said, you know what? Adapt, adopt and improve. So I went over and I said, I said, hey, I'm Grady. I'm so glad you came out. You know, I'm not going to stand up and give a big speech because, you know, it's just you. So let's talk like just like, let's rap, man, just like people. And she said, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. I'm just waiting for my friend to come out of the bathroom. And the, the <laughs> store manager was so embarrassed there was no one there that he made the staff, all four of them, sit and listen to my steal. And the problem was the register was right behind me. So when someone was like coming up to buy something, they'd have to oh get up God. and go. Yeah. And and I, I vowed then like Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind, like <laughs> I'll never eat beets again. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so when I did my best friend's exorcism, I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm doing a, I'm, I'm, I'm putting on a costume. I'm doing a thing. I don't know what it is. So I went out and I had this shtick worked up. It was okay. It wasn't great. It was okay. Um, and then after that came paperbacks from hell and I was like, I'm doing a show, I'm doing a show. And so with paperbacks from hell, I did this 55 minute show with songs in it. And it's about 55 to 60 minutes, depending on if people laugh or not. And it's got something like 122, <laughs> oh no, 118 slides. So it, it moves and, um, people loved it. And I would get libraries that like would host it in bars to, to do it. People get drunk, have a great time. Yes. Um, and so I've done that with every single one of my books is I just got back from a drive in this weekend doing the, um, uh, paper, uh, the final girl support group show. And, um, <laughs> that's, I find it so much fun to do that. And so unfun to do a book reading and a Q and a, um, and so that's just something I do. And I think, you know, look, people have come out. They've been hurt by author events before. Um, if you give them a doll, they can show you where the author touched them in a bad place. Um, and, I wouldn't be know, mad about that. I don't. I don't see the problem. I don't know. You've seen authors; they're not all as pretty as this. Um, <laughs> but full circle. Um, <laughs> but I feel like if people have come out and gotten a sitter and hauled their ass to a bookstore. I deserve to give them a good time. Like, you know, I will make sure they can relax and know that I'm the biggest idiot in the room. I'm going to give them like something they don't know or haven't heard before. And they're going to have fun. 
And if they don't have fun, they're free drinks. You know, I just like, that's the bargain, I feel like. Exactly. <laughs> and the movie is finished shooting yet? Or yeah, still? It's in, I think it's in post production or like in, in, in like, you know, post post production. Like it's, wow. it's done. I haven't it's seen. coming. Yeah. <laughs> are you anticipating uh, sitting down and watching that unfold? Or are you the kind of person that's going to go, oh, don't want to watch it? <laughs> that answers my question right yeah well it's funny i've written a couple of screenplays i mean i've written a lot of screenplays but a couple of screenplays i've written have been produced this movie called mohawk and a movie called satanic panic and in both cases the director had to be like you need to sit down and watch the movie now and i'd be like oh man come on don't make me do it and and i'm glad they did <laughs> I, i've sat it with an audience both times and seen them once with an audience and it's enormously educational to hear your dialogue. I mean, you really, it's really like four years of film school in each of those screenings. Um, but I, I'm only doing it once. Like I don't reread my <laughs> old books, like except yeah, right. for we sold our souls. I don't reread my old books. Like I, I, I just keep moving forward like a shark. Um, and, and like not a, not a cool shark, like an idiot shark. No. Um, <laughs> so, did you come up with the drill though? I have to know. Was the yes. drill though you are at? So the drill, though, was an amazing life lesson for me. So when I wrote that script, the the, the drill, the kill, though, actually, the drill dildo, the kill, though, was a big, big deal in the script. It was our litmus test. Producers would get it and be like, that's the greatest thing I've ever seen. We've got to make this movie. And other producers would get it and be like, so this um, sexual appliance. And, and so you really, you know, we had versions with it and without it, all this stuff. And in the movie itself, it doesn't work. On the page, it is amazing yeah. when people get it. In the movie, it doesn't work. And it doesn't work for a couple of reasons. It's not the fault of the filmmakers. It doesn't work because I didn't give it enough buildup. I didn't give it enough oomph. I didn't give it enough. And I didn't utilize it the right way. And ultimately, it's a sight gag. And unless you're doing like a naked gun movie or like, you know, something like that, sight gags don't work. And what I realized watching Satanic Panic with an audience is where the audience leans in is where there are two characters on screen talking, set pieces, gore effects, sight gags, people like, yeah, 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 okay. When it's two characters interacting, especially if they're in opposition and the, the, and the more in opposition you can put them, the better, but that's when people lean in. And so that was a huge lesson for me. Um, and it's something I don't think a lot of people who produce movies really respect. And I think it's something writers really respect. Um, and I think that leads to a lot of tension that isn't always bad, but a lot of tension between producers who want big, sellable, fun stuff on the page mm -hmm. and writers who are like, no, this is where people will pay attention when these two characters are arguing. Um, and so it's, but that was a huge lesson for me. So Grady, are you saying that's what made Pulp Friction a good film? There are scenes in Pulp Friction that are so moving as these characters interact. No, I actually, I don't think that's such a big thing in Pulp Friction, but the other foreign movie Herbie Hancock was buying, Bubble Butt Bongo 4, I feel like it's the best of the Bubble Butt Bongo series because it has yeah, the most I interaction. Agree. Not just like Lots yeah, of my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> so you brought up we sold our film. souls before. Yes. Whatever we sold our souls. I loved this book. Thank you. And like really like have you been in a band? No. Brady. Um 
but I know you, people have been. Oh, you've done your research there because when when it's first going back to Chris talking about the evolution of a gig and you sit, you sitting there and go, oh, well, not sitting there, but you're, you're behind the microphone or behind your instrument going, these people could care less if I just like burst into flames and then they, they tap their feet and then they, oh, they stop, they listen. And then by like, you capture that so well. Oh, Did thank you, you. Was that, was that an interview kind of process so, or is that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, a, I had, I mean, I was, I went to university in New York, so during the riot go- girl kind of boom, so everyone I knew was in a band, and I had to go to all their shows, and so <laughs> I, I had to lug equipment and amps and load the van and unload the van and um, sit in their dorm rooms or their apartments, getting stoned with them while they talk endless tour logistics, um, and um, that was part of it. And then I, metalheads are great. And so I was able to interview so many people in metal bands and stuff at, at that sort of level. And then I actually, um, I'm not very musical, but I took guitar lessons for about three months just to sort of get the feel of what that's like to actually play yeah. it. And I can, I can play the hell out of Zombie by the Cranberries and Smoke on the Water. Like I'm <laughs> primo on those at electric guitar. Work um, it out. <laughs> that's about it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I am. Um, I just did a lot of research and um, yeah, and, but I'm glad it worked because and yeah, that as, book really means a lot to me. That book really writing that book got me through a really tough time in my life. And so when someone, and it's, it's, it's my lowest selling book. Um, and, Cause as my agent um, says, uh, every writer wants to write a rock and roll book and it's the job of every agent to stop them. Um, <laughs> I mean, George R. R. Martin wrote a rock and roll book and it wrecked his writing career. And then he got into TV and then did Game of Thrones. Like it will, I mean, you know, it will trash your career. And actually, you know, I was pretty toxic after we sold our souls because of the sales numbers. Um, and so, but I, I really, that book means a lot to me personally. You can tell it's a very, again, cathartic book. You can tell for anyone that's, I think, chased a dream or the or had a taste of something that they really love and then has to go back to the to the you know the normal world the people that that are artistic that are creative that have passion you feel that in this as well like you go no, you know yeah. what it's like to stand behind a counter and have to deal with assholes when all you really want to do is the thing that makes your heart beat a little bit faster and that journey is, is definitely there in that book I, yeah, I think it's, I, I kind of think I gravitated to this most, actually. Oh, thank this, you. No, yeah. I really appreciate it. it. It's also, you know, one of the things for me is when I wrote that book, I was really, like, every single one of my books has, like, a question in it that isn't clear for the reader. But for me, it's sort of what pulls me through the book. And for We Sold Our Souls, it was like, when do I quit? Like, I was still mm. taking freelance gigs at that point. I wasn't getting a lot of traction. I mean, best friends, extras did well. Hey, Rex, held it well. I mean, I, I had a small career, but um, I was I'm, I'm four, I was 44, 45 when I wrote that. It's like, when do I stop? When do I re- yeah. like? When is this? When do I get over the line? And um, yeah. and that was really what Chris and the book is sort of dealing with. And so that book was sort of my way of being like, what what am I doing here? What am I doing with my life? Exactly. Like and. The end of the end of that story is so. It's so fitting as well because Chris, 
depending on how you read the book, Chris disappears into the mythology that she creates as yeah. well. So ultimately the artist is like incidental in it with the art that they create. She becomes this legend because she created a legend and then it, the effects of the book kind of bleed out into into the rest of the world and yeah i've just it's not a happy ending but it's a hopeful one if, if yeah that's no my... i really appreciate that <laughs> you know one place that book came from is so when i was a kid one of my i've got three older sisters and one of them was uh living in philly and she managed a band and she was managing and they were small bands and she was managing like club bands and she was managing a band called the 10th house and I thought, they, and I had their demo tape, and I thought they were pretty great. Um, no one else did. They would play like outdoor <laughs> gigs and bars and stuff, you know. Um, For five and, people, and, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I thought they were really great, and so, and there was something about that personal connection with my sister. And so, I, I, I was a pretty terrible uh, student in high school, and I had their demo tape with three songs on it. And I, some mornings listening to that on the drive to school, when I, I drive my Volkswagen van into school, was like just, the drive was just long enough to listen to that demo once. And that, a lot of mornings in 10th grade and 11th grade, that demo is what got me to school. It meant yeah. everything to me. And, and around then, like the band broke up, they drifted off. I'm sure most of them have straight jobs now. And <laughs> To them, I'm sure they look back on the time when they're the bands. I'm sure some of them regard it as a giant failure. I'm sure some of them regard it as, oh, that was a fun phase. You know, others, but they changed my life with that demo. Yeah. They got me through a really rough period. And, you know, I feel like that's, that's what doing art is. And um, you sort of just put messages in a bottle and you just throw them in the ocean. And you hope they wash up on beaches, on islands where people open them up and are like, this is the map I need. And you may never know. You're never probably going to know what they reach or who they get to. But that's what you do because you can't yeah. do anything else. And, and it does matter because even if it's just like a 15-year-old kid in South Carolina, it gets to someone who needs it. You just have to trust that, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. that's beautiful i love yeah i'm, I'm like oh yeah beautiful. i get that i feel you i feel you i feel you as, as a as a performer i'm like that's that's all you really want as someone who creates that's all you want but i think you're you can i feel you, you feel the effect from this book right the southern book club's yeah. guide to vampires <laughs> slaying vampires this one seems to have like connected like no one's business right yeah. <laughs> it did, I mean, it was my first book to hit the New York Times bestseller list, which really does change your value in the marketplace substantially. Um, and uh, one of the things with this book is it's a book I wanted to write probably since Horror Store, since around there. Um, and I was always worried that I wasn't good enough to pull it off because it meant a lot to me. And also, I got a lot of pushback from my publisher for reasons that I get, you know, they were kind of like, you know, our mark. This is a book about middle-aged women, and our marketing department doesn't know how to reach that audience. And like, you know, we do pop culture books. Like, how do? And I get it, you know. And you only want to write a book. That one of the lessons I've learned is you only want to write a book your publisher wants to sell. And I've seen writers not do that and really pay the price. I've not done that before and paid the price. Um, but 
with this book, I was like, dudes, this will, I, I really believe it. And then in the middle of doing it, they were like, I don't know, man, uh, the main characters are these older women. It's about vampires and the salespeople really think vampires are oversaturated. And so <laughs> that was actually very lucky for me because I really like opposition. I really like being like, I'll show you. Um, and because this book was so high stakes for me, I really wanted it to work and sort of, you know, really, really sweated it out. And I, I lost my editor who I had from the beginning. He moved on somewhere else during the beginning of this book. And I changed editors twice after. It was it was tough. And um, but I really I, I, I had a really strong feeling like, this book doesn't work like I, I'm doing something very wrong. Like it doesn't have book club in the title by accident. I was like, book clubs will read this book clubs like Books with book club in the title like the book clubs are always looking for new books and this is a book about a book club like it's it's yeah i feel like there's a market out there um so yeah so that one was really sort of the moonshot like it was right after we sold our souls and it's like it was my last book on contract with quirk and i was kind of like it was my go for broke yeah i, I, think, I think that oversaturation <laughs> That vampire oversaturation works in its favor because everyone's like, oh, vampires, right? <laughs> but that's the whole reason it works. And you capture the the bloodthirsty nature of the, you know, proper Southern woman so well. Was, as Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I'm very new to the Gradyverse here. Oh, um, welcome. Steve, Steve, uh, thank you. <laughs> Steve's like, oh, this author's going to come on the show. You got you to gotta get on board. I'm like, all right. So I'm cruising through cruising through Amazon. I'm like, well, 2020 bestseller, that seems like a pretty good place to start. And like by the second paragraph, I was hooked. And I just oh. came Tuesday and I'm not, I haven't finished it. I'm only halfway through, but I'm, it's like everything oh, keeps pulling me forward. Even. I'm like, I love no, it. You I'm know? so glad. Like that, that was, a. that's also a book where like, there were two radically different versions of that book before I sort of wrote the draft of what became the right book. Um, and it went through so many changes. I mean, there was a whole version where they just read normal books like Madame Bovary and uh, stuff like that. And then I was like, they should be reading true crime. Like, because yeah. no one takes true crime seriously. So it's one more reason to dismiss them. So I had to read a bunch of true crime while writing it. to sort of like, <laughs> what books are they reading? And, um, which was actually really um, eye-opening. I'm glad I got a chance to do that. Well, I know I'm going to massacre yeah. this, this, but one of my favorite, one of the things that, one of those moments that just grabbed me and I was like, oh, I love this writer, you know, was when you're talking about um, how people look down on popular fiction, mm. you know, and the, yeah. that conversation between uh, Patricia and Kitty, I think it is, you know, yeah. it seems like it's popular for a reason, you know, and I just like, yes, <laughs> yes. No, exactly. Well, you know, and I, I grew up with my mom's book club and then other book clubs around. And like, that is something they really wrestle with because when you put together your reading list, you're sort of presenting yourself to the world. And I, I think now genre fiction gets more respect. I think sort of post Harry Potter and Game of Thrones, it gets more in Twilight, it gets more respect. But um, I think for a long time, like, you know, you read John, like reading The Handmaid's Tale was seen as going out on a limb. You know, well, that's science mm -hmm. fiction. What are you doing, book club? Like, and, <laughs> that's so science fiction at the moment. <laughs> and I also grew up watching women apologize for what they were reading. 
um, which is something I see happens a lot. And I don't see it happen with guys as much, um, but I see it happen with women a lot, especially if they read romance or mysteries or, I mean, I can't tell you the number of times one of my sisters has said, oh, it's just a dumb blank. And I ask what they're reading. And it's really interesting to me. Well, I, right, I'm not going to put too many spoilers in there because Vera's going to keep Vera's going to keep reading, and I don't want to spoil any part well, of the so book for I, her. I, you know, I I come from a, an English literature uh, background. That's what my bachelor's degree was in before, long before I planned to go into nursing. I was going to be a journalist. I was going to write novels. I was going to take the path that you took. <laughs> but then it's like, oh, I hate deadlines. Oh, I don't want to cover another damn play. Oh, I don't care about that benefit. So I just like, I got out of news for good and stumbled into nursing. But I just, I, I love the way you observe the world. And, you know, I don't read to be edified. I read Chaucer. I've read Shakespeare. I've read all the great works because I have a bachelor's degree in great works. I read for fun, and your book is so much fun. Okay. Oh, like, I, I got a friend. I'm going to buy. We sold our souls for for Christmas. I got another friend. <laughs> like, oh, I'm, I really appreciate. No, listen, you're <laughs> you're paying my, my mortgage, so here. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, yeah, we're, we're gonna have to move on from that one because I don't want to spoil it because. That, that it turns so beautifully and it plays out like one of those old, like it, it's kind of like sudden Hitchcock, that slow burn realisation mm-hmm. that the evil is actually in suburbia, like shadow of a <laughs> doubt kind of thing where it's like, oh, things aren't right and they're really not right by the end of it. Um, my favourite, I've, I've got to put it out there, favourite character in the whole book is Mrs Green and oh yeah, she's written... <laughs> I, I'm so glad that you love her as well because you can tell, like she's so she she's part of that group, but she's so other from that group, and it's it says so much about the station of women and the station of you know non-white women, and especially in the South and in the '90s. But I can talk about this for ages. We're gonna have to keep going. Amazon, huge deal. Yeah? yeah, yeah. Well, actually, actually, it's interesting. So, Southern Book Club is going somewhere else for a TV series. Amazon oh. passed on it. Uh, okay. So, no, we're going somewhere else. We're we're negotiating right now. But the thing that's nice about this turning into a TV series is what you were just saying about Ms. Green. Every showrunner we've talked to really wants to expand Miss Green's role in the book, and I'm like, you go. Like, you know what I mean? The book is a finite amount of time. A TV season is a lot longer. So that's one thing I'm really, really excited about is doing more Ms. Green. Oh, definitely. She deserves it. She's amazing. And if you, I know that you don't like to cast your own stuff. But <laughs> my, my dream, Mrs. Just... Green, and this is who I pictured as soon as she came on. And I don't know how we make it happen, but I'm going to put it into the universe. Viola Davis. Oh, sure. Mrs. Green, come on. That's In it. A She's. I'm like Viola. That she like, especially with everything she did on how to get away with murder. I'm like, channel that into this. Oh, yeah. Anyway, sorry, I got a bit passionate about that. We we can't <laughs> let you go. We, we've been talking for an hour already, but we can't let you go without talking about your newest baby. And I'm sure you're sick of talking about her, but she no. is amazing. <laughs> Final Girl Support Group, Grady Hendrix. This um, we uh, are very 
horror-friendly podcast. We actually do a little horror spin-off called Uncen- uh, Uncensored Horror. We've um, interviewed uh, Lisa Wilcox from Friday the uh, not Friday the 13th, like, oh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4 and 5. We are all about the horror, and we nailed this sucker. Yeah. yeah. I'll oh, forward you the interview. Alice Johnson is my favorite final girl. I right? love Alice. So underrated. <laughs> right. I'll forward you the interview so you can have a look at her. Yeah, She's, please. And Lisa in real life is a trip, man. She's everything you <laughs> wanted to be. She's so humble, so nice. So um, whoever's casting, call Lisa Wilcox. She's she's good. <laughs> she's good to go for the movie. <laughs> um, but, yeah, talk to us about Final Girls because obviously you have an appreciation for 80s and 90s. Yeah, slashes. well, you know, <laughs> It's funny, there's two moments that this book comes from, and one is um, reading an issue of Fangoria, Fangoria number 12, April of 81, uh, which talk, which was a feature on the opening of Friday the 13th, part two, where Alice Hardy, played by Adrian King, who's the final girl from part one, is just sort of having a normal night at home, and all of a sudden Jason kills her. And um, that really blew me away. I was like eight years old when I read that. And I was like, what? Like, all this terrible stuff happened to her. She had to decapitate Ms. Voorhees, and they just knock her off like this at the beginning. And I was like, that's terrible. Like, this is, no, that's wrong. And then a few years later in 87, I think, I saw Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. And um, in the middle of it, Heather Langenkamp, Nancy Thompson, who's the final girl from part one, shows up leading a group therapy session for kids who are being terrorized by Freddy in part three and i was like oh my god these people can move between movies and like help each other and that sort of those two things sort of stuck in my mind until 2013 when i was talking to a friend of mine and i came up with the title final girl support group and um i was like that's the whole book right there and i mean i had done that i only been that lucky before with my best friend's exorcism where i had the title first and was like that's the book um And so from then it was just a matter of unpacking that, right? And sort of really, really taking these final girls, not just using them as these horror movie icons, but really taking them seriously as people and sort of what what does this do to you? What happens here? What is that like to watch all your friends get killed when you're in high school? And then you live under that shadow for the rest of your life. Like in your, your trauma gets turned into popcorn entertainment for everyone else. Like these things that happen to you are fun for other people. Like, so it was just really, I was really lucky, you know? I mean, there's been Final Girl stuff before and I really was determined to really take these people seriously as human beings um, and and really try to respect them that way. And I mean, also it's fun, I hope. It is. Oh, look, when I when I first started to read it, I actually got the narration by Adrian King. Oh, she's um, so good. Uh, and I was amazing like, voice actor, like amazing voice actor. I didn't, I had no idea. And then by the, because I, I listened to it on audiobook as well. I was like, what? Why are you so yeah. great, Adrian Kidd? <laughs> Sorry, Luke. <laughs> no, 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 you're right. No, I just wasn't sure what I was getting into. I was like, well, what is this? Like, is this like just about the trope of the final girl? Like, and then as it's starting to unpack, it's like, wow. And I think you really write women re- well. I think you really oh, do. I like, really you get. That. Yeah, I just think it was just, it's so interesting. Like, I, I haven't finished yet, and um, I have to, like, be careful now because when I'm playing, because I've been playing it in the car, but I've got a four-year-old in the back. <laughs> Normally we play, like, Beauty of the Beast or Nemo. And so she's like, oh, 
what's going to happen to Adrian now, Dad? I'm like, okay, oh my God. stop listening. That's amazing. <laughs> you can stop listening. <laughs> well, yeah, and you know, it's funny. There were two things that were really. How far are you in the book? I'm Me? about. Oh, yeah. Do you? Yeah, you go, Vera. I'm about a, no, about no. halfway. Okay. There were, okay, then I'll say there's there's one thing, there's two things that are really important to me, but one doesn't come up until later. But one of the things that's really important to me is, you know, there's a big difference between Final Girls and that kind of female warrior character in movies now. And the Final Girls we got in sort of the early slasher boom of like 78 to 84. And when you get these women now in movies, they show up ready to rumble, man. They are like... Furiosa in Fury Road. And I love that movie. I have nothing against it, but they show up like with all these weapon skills and they're fighters and they're tough and they're all these things. But the final girls I really grew up on were like big sisters and they weren't particularly strong and they didn't particularly fight well and they weren't sort of weaponized and ready to rumble. They weren't often even the smartest person in the room, but they just didn't quit. And yeah. they just refused to give up. And they had this real resiliency. That doesn't work. I'll do this. That doesn't work. I'll do this. You know, Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween. I'm trapped in a closet. What can I, okay, a coat hanger. I'll use anything. And that's what I really got. And so it was really important to me that whenever Lynette tries to do something tough, like to fight someone <laughs> or pull a gun or something, she either loses or makes it worse. Like, you know, it's, exactly. like, it's like, it was really important to me that that, that all her planning just sort of like not be worth it. And that she had to rely on sort of whether or not she can do this. Um, and, and I that, think that was always what was so interesting about the final girls back in, you know, definitely yeah. in 80s, 90s slashes was that sort of change from when they become like the victim to they almost are mirroring the killer by the end. Yeah. You know, they're coming at them with that same aggression, that same violence. Um, and that's usually like they that's when they were the one who succeeds because they're meeting what's yeah. like they're meeting the challenge, oh. I guess. They're, they're yeah. coming back the and it's. Whereas if they're starting the film already in warrior mode, there's no real growth there, is there? And there's no real yeah. rise to. Um... And like... Yeah, no, exactly. And it's, like, I love, I, no, no, I love Buffy. Like, I think, you know, I, my sister's oh. worship Buffy. I can't Hold, hold up, hold Buffy. up one second, Grady. Um, guess what Luke's daughter's name is. Her name is Buffy. <laughs> Oh, nice. <laughs> and she's very much a Buffy. She was trying to beat my 29-year-old sister up the other night. <laughs> she's four. And I'm like, stop it. I'm like, do you want to come and do some colouring? And she turns to me and she's like, yes, I do. But let me finish her off. I'm like, <laughs> well, I have to jump in really Get quickly. It, I haven't read Final Girl, but I'm, I'm picking up the, the gist of it. And having grown up in the 80s, the final girl was a pretty crucial step in the evolution of female heroes. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. And, and, you know, Buffy, as much as I love her, Buffy is a warrior from the word go. You know, she yeah. is right. ready to throw down. And, you know, and so they have to find ways to make her vulnerable and focus on the people around her and all that. And I think they do it amazingly well. But, like, the earlier final girls, like you were saying, Luke, they have to sort of fumble their way forward mm. to getting there. You know, they they aren't that to begin with. And I wanted these women to be that, you know? 
I always say like Chris Higgins is one of my favorite final girls because she's almost so unstable and hysterical to begin with. Yeah. And like by the end though, like she's a beast. Like she's really fighting Jason. And oh yeah. I, I Amy just Steele really enjoyed that. Amy Steele. Amy Steele, Ginny <laughs> Fields, Friday the 13th, part two for the win. For the win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I just want to, before we, I'm not going to spoil this one too much because there there is a big twist, and you do make the definition, the differentiation between a survivor and a final girl, which Lynette starts out as one and kind of graduates through. But there's a, a really interesting quote that Adrian has in the in the book, where she says, "No one's too far gone to be brought back, and no one is too lost to be found." Is that a general vibe? Like these these girls have horrible or women not girls, let's, you know, kind of segregate them <laughs> further, have horrible, horrible, horrible things happen to them. And yet they somehow manage to move forward. Even, um, yeah, if, like, even the most scarred of them. So I think, like, like Danny and characters like that, they find a way to move forward. Do you think that, that that's a, a message of hope, I guess, that even yeah. any trauma is, come? yeah, you can come through trauma? Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing you'll see in my books over and over again, it's the end of my best friend's exorcism, it's We Sold Our Souls, it's Final Girls, is the moment you're done is when you stop trying. Um, and I've seen people in my life who really have a tough time and they keep trying and their trying isn't always successful and sometimes it's ugly and sometimes it's messy, but they're alive because I know people who've stopped trying and they don't, they aren't alive in the same way. And I feel like that's really the only cardinal sin you can commit in your life is to give up. Um, you know, I, uh, I, when, you know, when my parents got divorced, my mom was in her fifties and she got married in 1958. She had a high school diploma. Uh, she'd been a nurse, but she gave up nursing to be a mom. And my parents were married for 34 years or something. And when they got divorced, she didn't have a credit score because she'd never had a bank account or a credit card in her name. And she really struggled and, you know, went back to school, graduated college, got her nursing certificate renewed and, and went on to have a really rich, full life after her 50s. But I would say from 51 to 58 or 59 was pretty bleak for her. And um and I think that's part of where it comes from for me is seeing her really in a position where she could have just stopped. You know, she really, no one would have blamed her and she didn't have that choice. And, you know, I was still a kid. My sisters were all off. I'm much younger, but she didn't have that choice. And so I always feel like giving up is the only thing you can do wrong. Everything else doesn't matter as long as you're trying. I love that message. And Look, we have been going for over an hour now, and I said I would only bother you for an hour. I have so many questions, but Grady, you've been so gracious with your time. Um, you've got a a nonfiction book coming out, though. These yes. fists make brick, break bricks. That's hard to say. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I like long titles that are hard to remember and say. Yeah, it's coming out. It's coming out a little later than we thought because international shipping's all messed up. It's in a container in the Pacific somewhere. We know that much. Oh, lovely. Um, but uh, yeah, it can be pre-ordered now, and it's a big 
it's like paperbacks from hell, but it's for Kung Fu movies. And it's the history of Kung Fu movies coming to America in the seventies. And I work with this friend of mine, Chris Bajali, and it's, we've got so much amazing art in it. So many movie posters, so many ads, things people have never seen before. Um, and we really operated from this principle of, you can't say that Kung Fu movies became popular in America in 1973. There was a, first one and there was a first screening and we were going to find the people who were there and man the stories we dug up chris and i everything from the cia sponsoring karate movies for <laughs> secretly producing karate movies to try to root out communists to an 11 year old <laughs> kid who made an international blockbuster film to uh, the New York Times fabricating, uh, like completely fabricating a series of stories about a black karate gang that was out to kill white people and starting a whole <laughs> basically race riot in New York City. Like we dug up so much amazing stuff. Um, we interviewed people who passed away since we interviewed them. It's we're both really proud of this book. Um, and, uh, you know, it's uh, I, I really hope people read it. Um, but if you want to pre-order it or something, um, you can find a link to it and everything on my site starting tomorrow, uh, gradyhendrix.com, or actually it's there now, uh, but gradyhendrix.com and um, pre-order it, get it, worship it, do what it says. <laughs> Even if it says kill your neighbors, just do it. The book's always right. <laughs> the book is always right. The book is always right. And of course, we, you've got lots of stuff coming down the pipe in visual media as well. You've, hinted that there's lots more coming book what is can you give us any like any like little dribbles of what's coming next in fiction yeah i mean i'm working on a book right now that i'm a little late on um but it's a novel and um it's set during the pandemic because i really got sick of writers i did i did a i'm not sick of but i did this i did this like sort of conversation with chuck palania who wrote fight club and, and he's a writer who has had an enormous influence on me um, I just like, you know, some of the stuff he does is really smart. But I asked him if he was working on anything. This was like in August, I think, of last year. And he was like, oh, yeah, I'm working on a book. And I was like, is it, is it contemporary? And so, again, I said, so how are you dealing with the pandemic? And he's like, yeah, I try not to include trends in my book. And I was like, I don't think this is a trend. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is a lie, buddy. It's a little bigger than Oh, my than God, that. yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I really, and I lost a lot of people uh, last year. I lost about five people last year. Um, and, um, and I feel like one of the jobs of a horror writer is to sort of um, remind people that not everything's buried. And I feel like there's this real urge to sort of take, 19, uh, take 2019 and take 2022 and just cut out everything between and just join those up and pretend it didn't happen. And um, I really, so it's a book that's set during the pandemic and it's about parents and brothers and sisters and evil puppets. <gasps> cool. Sounds be amazing. We are, we are ready for it. So if you have not, if you have not checked out a Grady Hendrix novel, folks, do yourself a favor. It doesn't matter where you start. They are all gold. So if, Read a title, read a read a description. Grady would love if you bought everything, obviously. Because twice. you know twice. We twice audiobook, <laughs> ebook, physical, you know, frame it on the wall. Uh Grady Hendricks, thank you so much for joining us today. You've been an absolute pleasure, as you promised you would be. Thank you for your time. <laughs> thank you so much. And I want to thank you guys for teaching me a very, very valuable lesson. 
that if I ever have a child and it's 10 years old and I have to discipline it, don't. Because clearly Jeffrey's child murdered him halfway through this. <laughs> no, it's Jeffrey's. It's Jeffrey's internet that murdered him. So that's what they say. We have to do a live show very soon. So if Jeffrey's not here, we'll have a, we'll, we'll contact the authorities. <laughs> I, between Buffy and Jeffrey's kid, I fear children a lot right now. Yes, they're terrifying. They are. They are. Terrifying. They ruin lives. You know. <laughs> This episode is made possible by PwC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.